Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings, friends. I'm Marquita Guerrero. And I'm Renee Powers. (laughs) (laughs) And we are here to talk with you today about a fantastic book that we didn't expect to love as much as we love by Tabitha Carbon. And the book is called This Is Not a Book About Benedict Cumberbatch. And the reason I'm going to come out of the gate hot, the reason I didn't expect to love this book is though I appreciate Benedict Cumberbatch as an artist, I do not find him in any way attractive. And I think it is very strange that the Cumberbatch sensation is a thing. And so I was like, whatever. And then Marikita, you said like, this book is great and we should talk about it. And I was like, all right, I got a copy. Let's do it. And here we are. At first I was like, well, she's being facetious because this is definitely a book about Benedict Cumberbatch. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But it's really not actually, like after you finish reading it and you take a step back from it, um, it's not about Benedict Cumberbatch. He's just the vessel. (laughs) Yes. So do you want to introduce our audience to what this book is actually about if it's not about the big BC? Sure. So the subtitle on this is The Joy of Loving Something, Anything Like Your Life Depends on It. And it really is about joy and it's about desire. But it starts off, uh, the framework for it is that um, the author, Tabitha Carbon, realized after she had two kids that she had completely lost her identity. Like she just like her identity was shattered and obliterated. And she found herself all of a sudden being drawn to Benedict Cumberbatch in like a really profound and magnetic and like inescapable way. (laughs) Yes. And it was through the show Sherlock that she really dug into her Cumberbatch fascination. Say that five times fast. (laughs) (laughs) She does. In fact, she loves it. She loves him so much that she has a like a Roomba named Benedict Cumberbatch. And that was my favorite, maybe my favorite, like immaterial to the book piece of information. I was here for all of the puns. <laughs> there are a lot. Yeah. There are a lot. And throughout the book, she uh, really explores what it means to have female desire and like what about that is taboo and like how does it move in us and like what does that look like and um and and why are we so ashamed of it yes yes I think that was what really rocked me was the fact that she spoke to shame in such a deep and nuanced and fresh way that I felt like oh somebody sees me for the first time it really felt like the things that we call guilty pleasures. And I don't like to use the phrase guilty pleasure because I think love what you love, dude, and don't, and be unabashed about it. But I still carry a little shame about some of the things that I do love. And so the fact that she just came, she came out swinging with, I love Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm putting his creepy cartoon face on the front of this book. (laughs) He looks like the underside of a stingray, her mom said. Yes. And, uh, and she's not going to be embarrassed by it. I, I just absolutely love audacious women who do that. Yeah. It's almost like an exploration of that phrase, 
not like the other girls. Mm, mm-hmm. Like, no, my fandom is authentic. My my desire for this is like, you know, my desire for this music is really about the music. It's not about the musicians. It's like undermining. At one point in time, they talk about Alanis Morissette and like taking this like beloved, cherished memory out into the town square and and murdering it, basically. Right. You know how like you have to be embarrassed and ashamed of like, your... Wasn't that silly that we loved that yeah. you know sob fest of an that album ballad, jagged yeah. little pill? Yeah, <laughs> which and was like, my first CD and still bops. <laughs> oh, it is a good CD, and like it obviously spoke to a lot of people at that time. It sold a lot of copies, and mm-hmm. like we don't need to be ashamed about that. We don't even need to pretend like we evolved past it. If you haven't evolved past it, like embrace it, love it whatever moves you like that is about being connected to yourself and she talks to she talks to a lot of experts in parasocial relationships and joy and desire and female desire in particular and one of the things that I really appreciated is she she spoke to someone who said something like we we're surprised by these affinities because we don't expect these so-called female texts to have anything universal to say. And mm-hmm. this is where things like chick lit gets pigeonholed or, you know, uh, chick flicks or rom-coms even that they only speak to a very specific female perspective, but, you know, action movies and Sherlock and Dr. Strange, right. Are, are universal. And I think that's such an important thing to hang a hat on here is that soap operas, romance novels, and all of these things that are for women get kind of poo-pooed because they're not seen as serious, but there are serious things that go on in these texts. And there are serious relationships that the consumer has with these texts as well. And we can't say that they're unimportant because clearly this book is important to me and Benedict Cumberbatch is important to her. Yeah. She examines it from like, you know, a lot of people said to her, how does your husband feel about this? Mm -hmm. You know? And she's got a whole chapter called, uh, this is not a book about, I think she like the, the chapter headings are all like, this is not a book about, oh, this is a chapter about other people is what like the, or this is a chapter about girl stories, or this is a chapter about motherhood. And the, the one about other people that she really isolates and identifies that question. What does your husband think about this? And she sort of thinks like, well, what would I, how would I feel if he was attracted to like the, was used as the, the quintessential female, beautiful female in this book is Scarlett Johansson and Scarlett Johansson shows up a lot of times. She's gorgeous. So I get it, Mm -hmm. you know, but she says in the book, you have to sort of see the desire for Scarlett Johansson uh, in the context of sexist objectification of women by men and the long tradition of women's worth being subsumed by and limited to that objectification. And she sort of, she pivots and says like, it would be different if he was attracted to a man, but because there's all this weight around the objectification of women, it feels different. So there's that piece of it. And then the other side of that coin is why do we have to look at all the things we desire and put it through all these filters and see how it affects other people. And then only then if it passes these tests, if only if it serves the role that I'm supposed to play in society, is it something I'm allowed to feel good about? Preach. Why can't we reserve? I mean, she talks to other cumber bitches. (laughs) Yes. 
lot of discussion around whether or not that's okay. Exactly. I love that discussion too, but you know, people in this fandom, especially women and older women in this fandom. And she, she talks to um, one older woman in particular, whose husband doesn't know kind of the extent of her obsession, Mm -hmm. desire, interest, fandom uh, with Benedict Cumberbatch. She says, yeah, I don't want him to know. Like, why can't I have, I've been married for, you know, decades. Why can't I have some privacy, some, well, a little piece of this that is my own, even though I, I'm in this relationship where, you know, ostensibly there isn't a whole lot of privacy. Like I want something that's mine and this is mine, Benedict is mine. Yeah. Yeah. Because everybody that she talks to, um, about fandom, about desire, about lust and longing and parasocial relationships, it is all around Benedict Cumberbatch, but it doesn't have to be right. It could be around anything at all. What is yours? What's your, what's mine? Well, I'm sort of in the state where she was in the very beginning of the book where she says, when you're about to become a mother, people tell you all the time, oh, you won't know what hit you, but motherhood doesn't have a moment of impact. Instead, you're stuck in an interminable holding pattern, circling the airport and dumping fuel. I feel your your baby's one year old. (laughs) She's one year old. And I still don't know who the fuck I am. Before I had her, I swore up and down for years of my life that I wouldn't lose my identity to motherhood. I didn't want to become one of those people that was like big into the like a self-identified mommy hood thing and nothing wrong with that. That's just not what I felt comfortable with, you know? And so I really felt really strongly about that. And what I didn't realize is that like, it's not possible. You don't have to like become someone who has like their family silhouette stickers or whatever, stick figure stickers on the car to lose your identity. You lose your identity because you are no longer the central figure in your life. And so you can't keep your identity. And I'm in that place where I'm still trying to figure out who the fuck I am Mm -hmm. after this, you know? And so this book spoke to that really deeply. I didn't expect to identify with, with this silly looking book on like such a deep emotional fundamental level and feel so validated by it. So to, in short, to answer your question, I don't, I don't fucking know, Renee. Yeah. I don't waiting for it. You're waiting for your Benedict Cumberbatch. I'm waiting for my Benedict Cumberbatch. I'll find it. Whatever it is, I'll find it. But I'm not there yet. I, I remember having many, many stages of my life where I felt that strong, deep connection to something. When I was like 13, I became obsessed with the beat generation and like Allen Ginsberg and Jack Kerouac. And like, that was like the thing that was like my, don't act surprised. I'm not at all. I just, (laughs) no, it's just validating so many of my thoughts about you and how wonderful you are. And I, like, I wrote a whole research paper over summer break for fun because I wanted to learn so much about it. So I know that that part of me exists and it's alive in there somewhere, but I don't know yet. What about you? It's just dormant right now. Yeah. Um, I like you was very passionate about very nerdy things, teens, tweens and teens. Josh Groban was my big one, Mm -hmm. uh, as a teenager. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, also a very rabid fan base, um, Mm -hmm. and, and fandom. I would say now it is 
I don't think anybody is surprised to hear that I'm a really big Marvel fan. And there are certain characters that I am very deeply connected to. One of them is Daredevil. <laughs> I've, I've done a lot of, I've tried to academia size my love uh-huh. affair with Daredevil. Uh-huh. Um, it is just an excuse to like love Daredevil. But the truth is, I just love Daredevil. I'm deeply attracted to daredevil i shat my pants spoiler alert when he (laughs) showed up in the new spider-man movie i am reading all of the like rumors and like where he's gonna show up again and i'm just like waiting with bated breath (laughs) for this character to return to this universe and you know what it's delicious yeah yeah you know and it's deeply important to us as human beings to have that Mm -hmm. and i and i do I do have to agree with a lot of the pieces in this book, like where she talks about how men are allowed to continue to play, but women lose that. We need to find that again. We need to be allowed to find that again. We need to allow ourselves to find that again without qualification. It doesn't matter. Yes. And without saying, and without apology, that's what I think is so beautiful about this book is that it's unapologetic. And I'm going to try to be more unapologetic about my love affair with a deeply flawed superhero. <laughs> <laughs> We're all flawed and it's okay. And and it doesn't have to mean any, like it doesn't, what was that? Don't get trapped in creating meaning. Sometimes mm. just watch Hunger Games until it's done. Just watch Netflix. Just be good, be good and kind to yourself. It doesn't have to generate a product. But even so, I'm going to read a quote that I did, Mark. So one of the other fans that she speaks to is a, the owner of a nail salon in rural Ohio. And she says, I remember my colleague who looked at my desk covered in Benedict Cumberbatch photos and thought it was ironic. There's something kitschy, too, in the image of elderly women in a rural nail salon that's papered with pinups of the sexiest man alive, confirmed by numerous polls. That's Benedict Cumberbatch. Mm-hmm. But I listened to Leah, the the... Uh, fan. And I think there's no way anyone could mistake that for irony. It sounds more like radical and subversive resistance. And that's exactly what female desire is, is radical and it is subversive. So love what you love. Yeah. (laughs) Because you're making a difference just by allowing yourself to play. Yeah. This book was funny. I was embarrassed for her at times. I recognized that as my trying to distance myself from my own embarrassing loves. And it was validating and funny. It was so funny. It was so funny. It's laugh out loud funny. I wasn't expecting it. I know she's like a comedic writer, but I just, it's hard for me to laugh at a book reading. I laughed. I laughed so hard. I thought I woke up my child, (laughs) which I don't ever want to do it so much more than I expected it to be. And I want to just hand it out to so many people, especially new moms. Yeah. Yeah. Especially new moms, but anybody that's gone through an identity shattering experience, because there are so many in our lives and we don't really get much of an opportunity to like sit back and accept that and find who we are again and again. Who knew that? what is this like 200 pages this this goofy little 200 page book was going to elicit such deep conversation and under and I don't know so many big feelings came out of I, this I didn't I didn't expect it I underline uh-uh. I don't underline in my books anymore I underlined so much in this because I was just like fuck yes 
all the tabs these are all, all the my tabs. tabs that I'm showing <laughs> my computer right now yeah I don't often do that either and I just really I just really enjoyed it so yeah shouts out to author Tabitha Carvin um Australian woman mm-hmm. this came out from um Putnam Sons Putnam Sons Press so thank you for sending us copies and it is out now. You can get it. We'll link it in the show notes. The title again is this is not a book about Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> so and it is, but it's not. <laughs> exactly. But again, this was yeah. a joy as always. Thank you so much. And thanks uh, for joining us. If anybody's looking for me online, I can be found intermittently on Instagram at O underscore Murray. And I'm on Instagram at Belle Renee or on the thumbs behind our Feminist Book Club account, which is your Feminist Book Club. Hi, friends. We've been asked before if we have a Patreon and we don't, not technically. But if you're looking to support us in that way, we do have a virtual community that's only $12 a month. You'll get access to book discussions, author chats, workshops, exclusive newsletters, blog posts, videos, and more. Connect with the feminist readers near you or just make new internet friends. There's even an app to make the experience as fun and convenient as possible. Head to feministbookclub.com join and select virtual membership or find a link in our show notes. We can't wait to meet you. Welcome back. I'm sitting down now with Caitlin Tiffany, author of Everything I Need I Get From You, How Fangirls Created the Internet as We Know It. And we are taking kind of a broader lens on this part of the episode. And I'm really excited to talk about the internet, fangirls, and One Direction. Hi, Caitlin. Hi. Thanks so much for having me. Can you give us a brief overview of this book? What is your elevator pitch for it? Oh my gosh. I'm so bad <laughs> at elevator pitches, like notoriously. So I think this book is an exploration of online fandom sort of through my experience in the One Direction fandom, just because as anyone who has been uh, on the internet, probably at this point knows fandom is such a wild and sprawling universe. You kind of have to to narrow it down and, and be specific and personal in order to understand it. So it's part memoir it's sort of just my personal map of the web via Harry Styles and crew (laughs) absolutely okay so I'm not a member of the One Direction fandom I am like what you call a local uh, a Uh casual observer of the fandom and a casual enjoyer (laughs) of One Direction music and all of the individual guys music but there is so much power in the collective fandoms on the internet. Can you speak to, you know, how fans use the internet to create power? What kinds of power are on the internet um, that the fans wield and utilize and kind of how that differs from cultural power previously, because you do take a historical view of fandom. So those are Mm -hmm. a bunch of questions about internet power, fan, fan bases go. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess fans like in, being some of the first groups of people to move onto social media platforms with a real like intent and vision for how to use them sort of innovated a lot of the like social media amplification tactics that we would be familiar with today that are also used by political actors or grassroots movements of various kinds. So 
they're extremely practiced in attracting and funneling attention and coordinating mass actions that require sort of repetitive individual actions like spamming or like replaying things over and over or just you know breaking a video down into every single gif that could possibly be extracted from it and like wallpapering the internet with it um so I think like their specific form of power is very attention based um and visibility based which is how it has tended to interact with political activism so far and right now we're at sort of an interesting moment, I think, where fans are recognizing that they have this ability to drive conversation and to attract attention to political causes, but they're also sort of running up against the limitations of that, which are similar to the limitations of any kind of internet activism, which is just that how much do we really think tweets translate into real world change? Is there any good way to measure the sort of intangible cultural impact of something being discussed online versus off. Um, and that's, that's sort of where we are now. You give this example of how One Direction fans borrowed tactics from K-pop fans uh, in light of the 2020 Black Lives Matter uprisings. Mm -hmm. Could you speak a little bit more about what these fans did to wield their power and what came of it. Yeah, during the Black Lives Matter protests in, in the summer of 2020, there were pretty concerted fan efforts to disrupt, I guess, surveillance activity mostly by police departments, by, you know, um, just repeatedly submitting videos of K-pop stars whenever they were asking for videos of protesters being quote unquote violent or unruly or other other kind of, I guess, denial of service style attacks, like directing so much traffic to a kind of flimsy police app that it would crash. And One Direction fans participated in that to an extent but I think it was mostly associated with K-pop fans who for a time were also kind of flirting with Anonymous, the um, somewhat defunct uh, hacker group that was known for their activities during Occupy Wall Street. So that was a really interesting moment. I think we saw a lot of fandoms orienting around Black Lives Matter and doing the sort of traditional kind of social media activism of promoting bail funds, promoting information about how to support protesters, changing their avatars so they weren't no longer of Ariana Grande or Taylor Swift or whoever, and they were of the Black Lives Matter fist, and just sort of appropriating all of their energy that they would normally be using for promoting their fave to promoting this cause. And then the, the K-pop editions were interesting because they went sort of a, a, a step in a different direction on the spectrum of online activism towards more disruptive activities, some more successful than others. I think one that came in for some criticism was 
the fans who were spamming the white lives matter hashtag on Twitter and Instagram with K-pop videos, which sort of had the unintended consequence of just making that hashtag more visible on the platform and, you know, making it show up in the trending tags that the phrase white lives matter was, was trending in K-pop, which was certainly not what fans intended and was sort of a waste of their time. And then I think there was a little bit of a of a wariness among researchers in fandom, people who had been paying attention to fandom for a long time, because while it was really exciting and inspiring to see fans organizing this way for what we all consider a valuable progressive cause, it was also sort of a moment of stepping back and thinking, okay, what does it mean if it it becomes a norm within fandom that like that this is what fandom is that these like actions of spamming of disruption are like part of what it means to be a fan right now it means that's great but what could that mean in the context of a different fandom with a different political orientation or even within k-pop fandom you know that's a that's a huge 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 group there's different k-pop stars there's millions of people all over the world who are participating in that so you know we're seeing those tools being used for for good at the moment but um but how could they be used later on it's definitely something to pay close attention to but what i think is the most interesting here in this discussion is you know we've talked on this podcast about how fandom and loving something or someone or being a fan of someone unabashedly is such an empowering and kind of, I don't want to say life-giving, but just like life-enriching um, experience. And at the same time, it is not in a vacuum. It is, it is a collective. When you participate on the internet, especially in the internet that girls created, <laughs> which is uh-huh. one of your arguments, it can have so much subversive power. And I, I do want to talk about how you say the whole web is created in girls image now. And you talk about cultural production and bedroom culture. I would love to you to speak to um, what do you mean by that? So bedroom culture is a super interesting category of subcultural studies that I came across when I was researching the book. Um, essentially, that was a field that had been really focused on on young boys in the post-war period and the ways that they were experimenting with with subcultures, with being, you know, punk rockers or um, <laughs> all of these super visual expressions of, of cultural subversion. And then there were some researchers who came along and sort of asked, well, where are the girls in this? Um, they don't seem to be out on the street for the most part with the boys participating to the same extent in these super visual attention grabbing cultures. So that is how the interest in in bedroom culture was born because it turned out that a lot of girls were at home participating in domestic duties, but also then kind of retreating to the bedroom where you would be reading and cutting up magazines, journaling, listening to music with other girls, participating in these outwardly seeming very generic 
activities that were in direct response to popular culture, but then um, iterating on them, you know, writing their own music, creating their own art, etc. And that has evolved to the point where I think girls' bedrooms, what they were doing in their in their bedroom was sort of the aesthetic and literary center of what Tumblr was in, in the early, in the 2010s, and has kind of become this cultural force that's also really where TikTok took off was girls at home recording themselves dancing or doing whatever and so I it it started as kind of an overlooked site of cultural production and now I think is is getting its due and is really glorified almost as like (laughs) the artistic center of of the internet yeah and I I love this point in your in your book about how so much of the social internet that we experience now, like you said, is influenced by Tumblr and TikTok. We could argue Twitter as well. We could argue Reddit. We could argue, you know, YouTube, but and I would even say, you know, as someone who did PhD research on YouTube, like YouTube is also a bedroom culture. We right. talk about like beauty gurus in their bedroom, putting on makeup. Like, so, so much of what we understand about social media and and online communities is created and established by young teen girls and we just don't give them <laughs> we don't give them the credit for it yeah i think recently in the last like few years and while i was finishing up the book there's been maybe like an overcorrection to that. I think for so long, teen girls were really pathologized and dismissed. And now people who are starting to feel guilty about having done that are sort of now holding them up as like geniuses and angels um, or people who see teen girls as an opportunity to make money um, are now doing so with a different inflection rather than like disparaging them or condescending to them as teeny boppers or whatever. And now it's sort of condescending to them as the future is female, rah, rah, uh, girl boss, whatever. So I don't know. I think we're in a moment of, of having to really calibrate because what I intended with the book is not to say that I mean, teen girls are children, you know, like their brains are not fully formed. So we don't need to talk about them as if they're savants or something, but it's, it's just more about appreciating that that is like an emotionally interesting and really rich time in someone's life where they have the opportunity for creative exploration and um, and to ask themselves really hard questions about their identity and what they want the shape of their life to look like and all of that stuff is worth exploring and and thinking about and not sort of dismissing as hysteria or mm. as like you know a, stupid um like fantasy having a fantasy life is not stupid it's very important for for figuring out who you are so. I think that was, that's kind of the calibration I'm hoping for is like just locating in the teenage girl experience, something that is universal or, or worth talking about without holding teen girls up to some, on some kind of pedestal. That's also not going to benefit them in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's nuance. Thank you for bringing nuance to that, to that. There's always 
black and white is the truth is somewhere in the middle. Right. Yeah. And before we wrap up, I do have to, you know, acknowledge that it's not just young girls who were and are one direction lovers. And so can you speak to a little bit about, you know, what doing this research, what being a fan of one direction as a grown woman (laughs) has taught you? What what has this book taught you about fandom community and the internet? So when I was doing the interviews for the book, I think what really struck me was how many people who, who came forward and like wanted to, wanted to speak for the book were people who did not conform to the sort of media stereotype of what a One Direction fangirl was. So there were mothers, um, women in their 40s and 50s in that group who had come to One Direction for various reasons, sometimes because they had a daughter who was into them, other times just because they came across them on a YouTube rabbit hole and got sucked in and were able to find an online community that would allow them to express that fandom. Um, I spoke to boys, I spoke to people, there was a major movement within One Direction fandom to acknowledge the presence of the LGBT community within fandom because the media focus is so much on the experience of the like cis heterosexual white teenage girl. Um, and that was a lot of the activism within fandom, I think actually started that way with with calling for visibility of oneself within the fandom space. And then that sort of energized outward facing activism in the long run. Um, so I think it was super interesting for me to hear just how people incorporate fandom into their lives at various points, not just during that teenage moment that is so fraught and exciting and scary where it makes sense to kind of be grasping for this sort of cultural orientation but later in life too when they were entering their 30s and thinking about being a real grown-up or um, my mom was talking about her Bruce Springsteen fandom when she was in her 30s and 40s and raising kids and sort of going to these concerts as a way to recenter herself as her own person. I think a lot of people have that experience as well. So I guess part of what I wanted to to acknowledge in the book was that fandom may not be something that you have the time or energy to indulge in every single day, like a teenager can, but it can still be a part of your, your life at various times, it kind of waxes and wanes when you need it. Perfect. What a great way to wrap up. If we wanted to connect further with you on the internet, where can we find you? I'm on the Atlantic. Uh, That's where I do most of my writing. And then I'm on Twitter at K-A-I-T underscore Tiffany. We will link that in the show notes. Everything I need I get from you is out now. We will link to that as well. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. 
There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. Well, red woman is a dead-